Welcome to the Historica Sicana. Chronicle 28. The Burning of Prospero. Welcome back to the Historica Sicana the Voxcast on everything to do with the history of psychers and sorcerers, operating under the auspices of the Logos Historica Verita on the orders of Lord Commander Gilliman. As always, I should remind all my authorised listeners that the information in this broadcast is for magenta clearance and above holders only. Today's chronicle will document the history of the 15th Legiones Astartes, their Primarch, and their eventual fall at the hands of their father's servants. The Thousand Sons were perhaps the greatest wielders of sorcery in the Great Crusade, and their censure one of the greatest demonstrations of the Emperor's wrath imaginable. With the rumoured reappearance of their forces in the battles with Lord Gilliman, all magenta clearance and above servants of the God Emperor are advised to heed the knowledge provided in this Voxcast. As all good Imperial citizens know, the Imperium of Man was forged in the Great Crusade in the late 30th millennium M30. The God Emperor set out from Holy Terror at the head of an army of standard humans, the Imperialis Auxilia, and the first warriors of the legendary Legiones Astartes, the Space Marines, superhuman angels of death clad in ceramite battleplate and armed with the greatest weapons at humanity's disposal. With this small but lethal force, our God Emperor sought to reunite the scattered worlds of ancient humanity, who had once held dominion over much of our galaxy, only for tragedy to strike and shatter human civilization. What may have caused this strife is outside of my specialty, but we've all heard the legends. The men of iron, the abominable intelligences that revolted against humanity's benevolent rule. Revolting Xenos, alien former allies that cowardly struck at our moment of weakness and enslaved our people for millennia. And of course, unsanctioned, untrained psychers whose powers brought destruction and death upon their worlds. But I'm, I'm getting sidetracked. The Great Crusade spread across the galaxy, recovering lost worlds and integrating them into the newborn Imperium of Mankind. During this time, the God Emperor recovered his twenty sons, the demigod Primarchs, who had been lost to him during their incubation. Each Primarch was given command of his own legion of space marines, gene forged from their essence, and dispatched to conquer the galaxy on behalf of their divine father. Countless worlds were brought into compliance by the Crusade fleets, Xenos civilizations that dared to trespass on humanity's rightful domain were purged with bolter and blade. Even the names of Primarchs such as Rogal Dawn, the Lion, Vulcan, and the Angel Sanguinius still inspire Imperial citizens to this day 10,000 years later. The Imperium of Man was ascendant, and the destiny of the human race was coming to fruition. Now, of course, my dear listeners of the Historica Sicana, I need not explain what psychers are. The Imperium of Man could scarcely function without these wielders of the warp, despite what we may wish. Interstellar communication would be impossible without the astropaths and their choirs to transmit and receive messages. Not to mention the impossibility of interstellar travel 
without the psychic beacon of the Astronomicon to guide our ships. As a scholar, I'm fortunate enough to have never been in a battle, but the sanctioned psychers of the Imperial Guard are reportedly a fearsome asset to the Emperor's finest. Yet, psychers are a necessary evil, and must be carefully supervised. After all, by their very nature they dabble with the damnable powers of the Immaterium, that dimension of emotion that can drive even the stoutest believer in the Imperial Creed insane. The uses and the dangers of warp breeds were known during the Great Crusade, and the Legiones Astartes held differing opinions on the subject. During the initial phase of the Great Crusade, Psygus had no role within the early legions. Yet, despite this, the genetic disposition which made itself known in mortal humans did so in transhumans. Incredible abilities began to manifest across the Legiones Astartes, although at different rates and with different reactions from the legions themselves. Some legions were said to welcome these abilities as assets to be used, others abhorred such mutations and forbade their use. However, no legion was so afflicted, or blessed, with psychic mutation than the Thousand Sons. Roughly half a Terran decade into their deployment into the Great Crusade, the 15th Legion, the Thousand Sons, began to develop incredible psychic abilities in numbers that simply eclipsed those in their cousin legions. Yet, with everything connected to the warp, this came with costs. The Thousand Sons began to suffer from rapid and rampant mutation, morphing legionaries into hideous abominations in an affliction the Sons called the Flesh Change. For the next several decades, the Thousand Sons continued to spread the rule of the Emperor, their numbers dwindling steadily, while they placed their afflicted battle brothers into stasis or, if this was impossible, euthanizing them. By the time the Legion found their gene sire, the Thousand Sons numbered barely a thousand. And so we must now speak of Magnus. Magnus the Red, the Crimson King, the Cyclops, the Sorcerer King, I need not list his titles. As holders of Magenta Clearance, you will undoubtedly know of Magnus's future fate. This chronicle is intended to explain how it came to pass. After being scattered alongside his brother Primarchs prior to the Great Crusade, Magnus's incubation capsule had landed on a planet called Prospero. Prospero was a planet of outcasts, psychers all, who had formed a society that treasured knowledge and wisdom above all else. Magnus was a gifted psyker, to put it mildly. Some of the records I've seen suggested he wielded the warp better than anyone but the god emperor himself, and as one of the emperor's sons, this is somewhat believable. Magnus was taught by the best scholar psychers on Prospero, but surpassed their greatest work as if it was nothing. It is said that Magnus went so far as to psychically enter the warp, a feat none of the Prosperine had ever attempted and lived. Whether the Emperor found Prospero because of Magnus's psychic efforts, or simply through his own godlike powers, he did, although as with many records from this time, the exact dating is unclear, with centuries of difference between each possibility. All we know for sure is that when the 15th Primarch was reunited with the 15th Legion, their numbers had been ravaged by both combat and the uncontrollable and unstoppable mutation of the flesh change. What Magnus's reaction was to seeing his gene sons so humbled 
kneeling in the Prosperine dust is unknown. Perhaps he wept, as some accounts say, or perhaps his countenance was of cold determination to find a cure to this terrible affliction. What occurred next can only be guessed at, or deduced in shape from the shadows it casts from that time into the present. Magnus found a cure and saved his legion. At the time, none were certain how he'd achieved this, and such were the abilities of the Crimson Kings that few, even amongst his brothers, could have begun to understand the answer even if he had given it. Now, with suspicion gifted from the scars of treachery, it seems possible that Magnus delved too far beyond what mankind should know for the means to save his sons, and perhaps with his salvation, sold them to a greater doom. An excerpt from one of the records I've found. Whatever occurred at that union, the flesh change that had plagued the Thousand Sons for decades was gone. Better still, the population of Magnus's adopted homeworld, Prospero, was an eager and compatible recruiting pool for the Legion, and so the Thousand Sons soon numbered far more than their name suggested. With the Crimson King at their head, the 15th rejoined the Great Crusade and spread the Emperor's dominion across the stars. It was with the recovery of Magnus that the issue of unrestrained psychers in the ranks of the Legiones Astartes was resolved, albeit temporarily. The Crimson King, alongside his brother Primarchs such as Sanguinius and the Khan, petitioned the Emperor to allow the formation of the Librarius, a programme designed to harness warp abilities, allowing their use to benefit the Imperium and reducing the risk they posed through ill training. The Thousand Sons and Sanguinius's Blood Angels led the training of these librarians, and so the question of psychers among the Space Marines was settled. So it may seem from our view, the Adeptus Astartes of our age indeed still make use of psychers in battle, and I have it on good authority that they are still named librarians. Yet, the Librarian Crisis, as it came to be known, was the most destabilising event of the early Imperium, at least until the heresy, an exception which should go without saying. For decades, the Great Crusade continued its magnificent quest to manifest humanity's destiny to hold sole dominion over the stars, and Magnus and his thousand sons were at the forefront. However, throughout their service, rumours of the dark nature of their abilities swirled, and no matter how staunchly the sons of Prospero proclaimed their innocence from such slander, their reputation for sorcery went unabated. As much an advocate of the Librarius as Magnus was, there were those among his brother Primarchs who were equally as disgusted by the use of psychers in the legions. Mortarian, Lord of the Death Guard, was one, as was Lehman Ross, the Wolf King of the Vilica Fenrica. Both sought an end to the Librarian program and to the warpcraft of the Thousand Sons. The time to resolve this crisis came in the aftermath of the Triumph of Ulanor, where the Emperor had announced his retirement from leading the Crusade in person and bestowed the title of Warmaster upon his favoured son, Horus. Yet, such was the division and resentment caused by the debate over the use of psychic powers among the Legiones Astartes that the Emperor convened a great convocation to settle the conflict once and for all. This gathering gained the title, the Council of Nicaea, 
from those chroniclers in attendance. But for others, considering the aftermath, this was no neutral discussion. This was the trial of Magnus the Red and his thousand sons. On the young planet of Nikea, whose exact location is unclear, a great amphitheatre was carved from the core of a stratovolcano, a vast structure that could host the thousands, the tens of thousands, of bureaucrats, generals, planetary governors, soldiers, and space marines that were in attendance. Vast environmental engines kept the atmosphere within bearable for unenhanced humans, and prevented the attendees from being instantaneously incinerated by the natural heat, which I'm sure was much appreciated. Among the notables in attendance were high-ranking members of the Astra Telepathica, representatives from the Navigator Guilds, the Fabricator General of Mars, the Emperor's right hand, Malkador the Sigilite, and no less than seven of the Emperor's sons. The Master of Mankind was, of course, overseeing the Council, but played little part in the debate itself, allowing his sons and servants to make their cases without showing favour towards one case or another. And so, advocates and critics of the Librarius made their speeches. The first to speak was a rune priest of the Space Wolves, a son of Lehman Russ. Despite wielding powers which, to my limited understanding, appear not dissimilar to those of the Thousand Sons, he echoed his gene father's disgust for warpcraft, and called the sons of Magnus warlocks and sorcerers. He was supported by the Primarch of the Death Guard, Mortarian. His rasping voice carrying to the farthest reaches of the hall, he decried that the Imperium was making use of abilities which had already brought one empire low and began the thousands of years of the Age of Strife. His father, the Emperor, had instituted countless ways to restrict civilian psychers. Methods of discovering and imprisoning witchbreeds, the psychically dampened black ships, the Null Maidens of the Sisters of Silence, all designed to capture and restrict the activities of these dangerous individuals. The Emperor, beloved by all, would not have created these safeguards if the danger was insignificant. Why hold the Legiones Astartes, transhuman demigods of battle, to a weaker standard? Mortarian left the stage, having said his piece, and many others took his place to decry the existence of the Librarius, and of the actions of the Thousand Sons in particular. Yet, this chronicle should not suggest that the Council of Nikea was merely a barrage of criticism directed against Psychers. As Malkador the Sigilite had promised, all who wished to speak were allowed to do so. And Magnus, oh, Magnus certainly wished to speak. He spoke of the great virtues provided to the Imperium by the Librarius, not just in battle, although their powers eased the victories of the Emperor's armies substantially. The Librarius was a force for wisdom and knowledge, to expand the boundaries of humanity's understanding of the cosmos and its place within it. I quote, Knowledge is the food of the soul, and no knowledge can be thought of as wrong, so long as each seeker after truth is master of what he learns. Nothing worth knowing can be taught, it must be learned with the blood and sweat of experience. And there are no greater scholars of that ilk than the Thousand Sons. If I am guilty of anything, it is the simple pursuit of knowledge. The Primarch of the Fifteenth had 
made a significant dent in the argument of his accusers. The council took a recess, and the Thousand Sons retreated to their quarters, confident that they had turned the tide. Now, what occurred during this time is unclear. Of course, there are rumours of spies and sorcery during this, of conflict between elements of the Thousand Sons and the Space Wolves. Some even suggest the Sons of Prospero used sorcery against the Emperor's own bodyguards, the Legio Custodes, but this is not believable. This would be the height of foolhardiness, and even Magnus, in all of his hubris, would never countenance such an act. Yet. Whatever the truth, when the council reconvened, something had clearly occurred that harmed the case of the librarians. Despite the support of the chief librarians of the White Scars, the Dark Angels, Salamanders, Ultramarines, and even Night Lords legions, the Emperor had come to his decision. I see now I have allowed my sons to delve too profoundly into matters I should never have permitted them to know even existed. Let it be known that no one shall suffer censure, for this conclave is to serve unity, not discord. But no more shall the threat of sorcery be allowed to taint the warriors of the Astartes. Henceforth, it is my will that no legion will maintain a librarious department. All its warriors and instructors must be returned to the battle companies, and never again employ any psychic powers. Woe betide he who ignores my warning or breaks faith with me. He shall be my enemy, and I will visit such destruction upon him and all his followers that, until the end of all things, he shall rue the day he turned from my light. The Emperor, pronouncing the Edict of Nicaea. These were the words of the Emperor. There was no appeal. The Thousand Sons accepted the judgment stoically, as did their supporters, and the gathering dispersed. Hundreds of shuttles and gunships transported the attendees back to orbit, and the now vacant amphitheatre, carved out of an active volcano, was blasted by orbital strikes. Perhaps this was intended as a message, burying the place of descent in volcanic rubble as one can hope to bury the past, to allow a new, united Imperium to emerge. Or, it was a threat posed to those who considered breaking the edict. In either case, the business of the Great Crusade continued as the attendees returned to their expected places, with two notable exceptions. The Emperor, satisfied that his sons were now of one mind, returned to Terra to begin his great project while Magnus retreated to Prospero to consider his new place in the New Order. For three years, Magnus brooded on Prospero, with little being heard from the Primarch while the bulk of his thousand sons returned to the Great Crusade, limited solely to the use of their bolters and blades to spread the Emperor's rule. At the end of this period, the Crimson King recalled his legion to Prospero, and events that are still shrouded in mystery began in earnest. In the fourth year of M30, the Imperial Palace on Terra was struck by a terrible cataclysm. Unnatural earthquakes brought towers tumbling to the ground, while law-abiding Imperial citizens were spurred into bloodthirsty rages. Profane murders occurred across the palace city, 
civil infrastructure collapsed, power grids failed and fires consumed entire hab blocks. Entire cities on Terra's night side awoke screaming from their nightmares, while the minds of many were utterly reworked, their memories and feelings changed to the point they were completely different people than they had been mere seconds ago. The City of Sight, the home and school of Terra's sanctioned psychers, was overturned in an instant. Aspirants had their psyches emptied from the power, while even sage and experienced astropaths had their minds ripped asunder, while their bodies became vessels for warp entities, which stalked the halls in all their impossible hatred. Casualty figures across the planet ran into their millions. Yet whatever was occurring deep underground, in the presence of the Emperor at his great project, was surely even worse. Whatever connection there was between Magnus and the calamity that had struck humanity's birthrock was never spoken of publicly. Yet, just hours after the psychic attack, the order was given by the Emperor for a detachment of the Legio Custodes and the Sisters of Silence, along with the entire legion of the Vilca Fenrica, to bring his son back in chains. Much of what we know, looking back these ten millennia at the burning of Prospero, is fragmentary at best. The censure order, given by the Emperor himself, demanded that Magnus be brought before the throne to answer for his unspoken crimes, although it allows, quote, any and all means without limit in law, sanction, or imposition of attainder, end quote, to see this goal achieved. Now, I am not one to even attempt to guess at the mind of the God Emperor beloved by all, but there are other scholars who question the sense in sending Rus. Rus was one of Magnus's greatest rivals, who openly and loudly despised his brother's use of Maleficarum. Like some, and again this is the suggestion of others, believe that the choice of Space Wolves to enforce the censure was the Emperor's tacit endorsement of what was to come. Yet there are alternative theories. Could it be possible that Rus took this opportunity to exact the punishment he believed Magnus deserved, in spite of his father's wishes? Or, as it has also been suggested, did the War Master play a role in this disaster, persuading Rus that Magnus was not worth arresting? It would certainly suit his future plans if the Space Wolves and Thousand Suns wiped each other out. When the Censure fleet arrived in the Prospero system, Lehman Ross attempted to reason with his brother. Yet, for reasons unknown, the planet of Prospero was silent. The fleet of the Thousand Suns was not in orbit, the orbital defence stations were not active, and no communication, vox or psychic in nature, was forthcoming from the surface. Ross, for all of his talents, was not a Primarch fond of patience. When no response arrived, Ross unleashed his wolves, and Prospero burned. The first to die were the crews of the orbital platforms, unaware of any incoming assault as they were. Destroyed in mere seconds, the ships of the Censure fleet took up position above the homeworld of the Thousand Suns. Like a blade of brilliance, the first energy lance struck the planet, a kilometre outside of its capital city, Tizka. Where it struck the ocean, 
a 500-metre column of seawater was flash-boiled into superheated steam, which boiled the flesh from the bones of those unfortunate workers on the seafront. On land, entire mountain ranges were demolished as nuclear warheads and magma bombs levelled in seconds geological formations that had taken millions of years to form. This was only the result of the first barrage from the first ship. The entire censure fleet brought its weaponry to bear on the planet, and Prospero shook from the weight of the Emperor's fury. The fleet's bombardment had torched Prospero and ignited the atmosphere. Giant columns of plasma energy had roasted all vegetation and wildlife, and turned the seas into scalding banks of steam and toxic gas. Vast LAS bombardments from heavy batteries had evaporated river deltas and flash-thawed ice caps. Magma bombs and atomics, the godhammers, had altered the geography itself. Mountains had been levelled, plains split, valleys thrown up into new hills of rubble and spoil. Prospero's crust had fractured. We saw the throbbing, glowing tracts of its mortal wounds, brand new canyons of fire that split continents. The Testimony of Ahmad ibn Rusta, Skjold of Tra Great Company Despite this bombardment, Tizka itself was unfazed. The Thousand Suns had their own defences, both of science and of the warp, which prevented the greatest bombardment in the history of the Imperium from incinerating the City of Light like so much kindling. Expecting this, the Wolves had deployed in their thousands even as the Armada's weaponry was still firing. Hundreds of drop pods and gunships sped below the Kine Shields, which protected the skies of Tizka, bearing the legionaries of the Vilka Fenrika, as well as their auxiliaries, the Cohort of Custodes, the Sisters of Silence, and the masses of the Imperial Army. There are also reports that Titans from the Legio Mortis would be deployed later in the battle to bring their city-cracking weaponry to bear, on the 15th Legion. Speaking of the Thousand Sons, they were not idle. Whatever had prevented them from learning of the impending attack, the bombardment was clearly enough to break their reverie. They marched alongside the Prosperine Spire Guard, the mortal militia of the city, to repel the invaders. Such was their anger at this attack by their own cousins that the warp wielders among them used their powers with abandon, flagrantly ignoring the Edict of Nikea and justifying the previous actions of the Censure fleet. Flames and spears of electricity flew from the hands and staves of the Thousand Suns, piercing the power armour of the walls with ease and cooking others alive inside theirs. Legionaries were hurled through the air by invisible forces or crumpled into barely recognisable piles of metal and meat. More mundanely inclined Thousand Sons made ample use of their bolters, the mass-reactive rounds aimed perfectly to hit armour joints and gorgets, detonating as designed within the flesh. Yet, the Thousand Sons were dying. The Wolves were just as efficient killers as the Sons of Prospero, and they had powerful allies. The presence of the Sisters of Silence cut the Prosperine Sorcerers from their connection to the Warp, hobbling their most valuable asset, while the Custodian Guard were more akin to individual armies, avoiding the attacks of Magnus's superhuman sons with reflexes as superior to Astartes as Astartes were to mortal humans. 
all the while cutting their foes down with precision strikes of their guardian spears. This is to say nothing of the Wolf King. A Primarch, as we have seen with the return of Lord Gilliman, is an architect of slaughter, and none could stand before him. Faster and stronger than even the Custodes, the only thing that could match Lehman Ross in battle was another Primarch, and Magnus was absent. But by far the most horrifying result of the battle for Tisga, for the Thousand Sons at least, was the return of the flesh change. Whatever Magnus had done, whatever deal he had wrought so long ago, the sheer scale of the battle had undone it. Across Tisca, legionaries rapidly mutated, their brothers looking on in horror. The use of their sorceries, wielded in anger at the trespass of the hated space wolves, only amplified the corruption. Some became little more than deranged beasts, charging at the invaders until they were cut down. Others simply detonated in explosions of magical energy that destroyed everything, allies, enemies, buildings, around them. Such was the etheric power manifested that day that some of the more poetic accounts say that the very sky rained blood. As the Thousand Sons were forced to fall back further and further, finally Magnus made himself known. Whatever had kept him from the battle, had clearly passed, and he descended from the pyramid as a fire-reefed form of pure rage. Whatever powers his sons had wielded paled in comparison to those of the Crimson King. Scores of space wolves were crushed by his power, or struck by coruscating arcs of lightning, or simply vanished in sprays of bloody mist as his blade passed through them. Much like had occurred with the advance of Rus. No mere Astartes could stand against Magnus, and so the Wolf King and the Crimson King dueled to the death. What happened in this battle is, as with much of early Imperial history, unclear. The speed of both Primarchs and the abilities wielded by Magnus were too much for many witnesses to comprehend. All that is known for sure is that Rus was victorious, and yet Magnus was powerful enough to teleport himself and his sons away at the cusp of his destruction. Where he went, who can say, but when the Thousand Sons reappeared in Imperial records, they were fighting on the side of the Arch-Traitor. Their mystical arts wielded against the Imperium that had rejected them. To break character, at this point you might be very confused, and it should go without saying that this is not a normal episode of the History of Witchcraft. No, for April Fool's Day, I thought I'd do something a little different. And since I'm a huge fan of the Warhammer 40,000 universe, I decided that I really should do an episode on one of my favourite events in the lore, the Burning of Prospero. There's a couple of reasons for this choice. The writers took a lot of inspiration from historical events, for example. You might have picked up on the whole Council of Nikea organised by the Emperor to solve the Librarian Crisis as being a reflection of the Council of Nikea organised by the Emperor to solve the Aryan Crisis. There are also some other, equally unsubtle, nods to real life. Prospero is, of course, the name of the sorcerer in Shakespeare's Tempest. I didn't mention them, so it's understandable if you didn't notice them, but one of the chief characters of the Thousand Sons is called Araman, an incredibly powerful psyker who had a brother called Ormuzd. As you may remember from the episode on Zoroastrian opinions of witchcraft, Araman and Ormuzd are opposites of each other. 
with Ahriman in particular being noted as the god and patron of sorcerers. But really, all these historical parallels and teasers are just excuses for me to do something in the 40k universe. If you found this episode interesting and want to learn more about this crazy, over-the-top, wonderfully detailed universe, then I highly recommend the books in the descriptions which I've used to write the script, and a YouTube channel called Oculus Imperia, which will also be linked in the description. All of his videos are presented from an in-universe perspective, he has wonderful music, wonderful art on display, and is just genuinely a fantastic presenter, so go give him a listen if you're interested. If you're not interested and you found this episode boring, then thanks for sitting through to this point, I suppose. Normal episodes will resume next week when we go back to early modern England and cover the trials of witches in Stuart, England. There will, however, be a lot less actual magic, space marines, starships, genocide, guns, all of that good stuff, which is a bit of a shame, but I suppose much more realistic. Thank you to Hammer of the Witches, executed today, Witchfinder General Michelle G, and the Inquisitors Trish G, Elaine D, and to all of my theologians for supporting the show through Patreon. You can join their ranks by visiting the show's Patreon page at patreon.com slash historyofwitchcraft, or you can support the show by providing a review on iTunes or whichever podcatcher you use. Thanks again to all of my patrons, Kevin McLeod for providing the intro and outro music, and to you for listening. <laughs>